Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 28th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Um, Got a busy week uh, the past couple of weeks um, in terms of financial data, um, numbers, and just headlines in general. Um, So we'll just go ahead and dive right into it with the performance of the markets year to date. Um, And as always, this data is from stockcharts.com and as of the market close on January 8th. So for the new year, uh, the S&P is up 0.69%, the Dow up 0.76%, the NASDAQ index up 1.75%, so a strong start to the year for tech stocks. Uh, The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 is down 0.22% to start the year. The International Index X United States also down 0.35% to start the year. Uh, The three-month T-bill currently yielding 1.54%. The two-year Treasury currently yielding 1.58%. And the 10-year Treasury uh, yielding 1.87%. So, Um, So as we mentioned, it's been busy in terms of news headlines, especially uh, with what's been going on in the Middle East the past week, Matt, since we recorded our last podcast. Um, As many people know, the U.S. conducted a drone strike on a top Iranian military commander last week, which killed him in Baghdad. Um, And this originally sent oil prices higher by about 4% with little impact uh, on the stock market, you know, stock prices originally fell less than 1%. And then again, just two nights ago, Iran retaliated with firing more than a dozen ballistic missiles um, at US troops at two air bases in Iraq. So there's kind of been a lot going on uh, this past week. Yeah, there has been, Mark. I mean, geopolitically, right? And I think that you're going to have periods of time in 2020, where these geopolitical events flare up. Um, you know, you and I just finished up work on our 2020 market outlook together. And you and I even talked about what are some of the other potential geopolitical scenarios that could come up um, in 2020. And so I think that you got to be realistic when these scenarios come up. When they do, emotions run high. You know, um, for example, when initially they responded two nights ago, you know, the futures on the Dow, again, it's a headline number, they were down four or 500. And then the next day, it opened up pretty much flat and closed positive. Yeah, and stocks at all time, all time highs, <laughs> you know, so you got to get a read between the tea leaves on that. But um, I think this is a good reminder for investors that um, stocks aren't going to go straight up. We're at 52 week highs, there's going to be points of stress in the market. And I think in 2020, one of the potential negative themes is geopolitical flare-ups. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And again, I think 
you know, Iran's response was more of a response to escalate to de-escalate scenario. Makes um, sense. You know, I, where I they don't... wanted to show the world that they still are a force, but without doing major significant damage where the U.S. was going to respond and respond uh, with a lot more force. Yeah, you, you, you don't want to swat the beehive. Right, exactly. And so. I, I think that they were very strategic in how they did it, and uh, they needed to save face. And um, I think from the market's perspective— so far, since what occurred over the past week, I think we're in a good spot. Not to say something else can't happen. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. we're so far, it's, I think, a best case scenario for the stock market. Yeah, exactly. And this is, I think it's another situation where, you know, you can't let news headlines like this impact your emotional decisions when it comes to investing. Right? Great point, Mark. Um, you know, even things as big of, you know, if people weren't a fan of Barack Obama when he got elected and said, you know, well, I'm changing my investing uh, plan based on Obama because he's going to wreck the economy. Well, the stock market did really well when Obama was in office. Yep. And then when Trump got elected, same the thing. same thing. I don't agree with Trump. I think he's going to wreck the economy. You would have missed on so much gains that you're not in a good spot right now, probably. Yeah. And then there's a couple um, podcasts ago we talked about, Mark, you know, people that are in a position where they are very cash heavy and they are still reluctant to dip their toe in. Right. Yeah. We, we, we talked about this. So I think people, you know, this is another example of you need to set aside, you know, political beliefs or any sort of beliefs when it comes to investing, because it could really have a huge impact on your return, um, on your return or your, you know, whether you're invested or not invested. Yeah. Um, so just another good, um, you know, example of why you got to separate the two. Um, reminder of corporate earnings coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So corporate earnings, um, starting at the end of January, which could bring, uh, focus back to companies instead of, uh, you know, geopolitical factors, if you want to say that, um, also on, I believe it's January 15th or 17th, the, uh, vice premier from China is supposed to come over and sign the phase one trade agreement. Yep. Um, so we'll see if that happens as well. Um, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught our eyes. Um, Matt, uh, JP Morgan came out with a guides to the market presentation, as I believe they do every year. Correct. Um, and they had a couple of good slides in here that um, I just wanted to bring up for people. And again, we're going to link to all of these charts that we talk about in the show notes. So if you go to www.jessupwealthmanagement.com, click the podcast tab in show notes, and you'll be able to see all of these charts uh, that Matt and I are discussing today. So the first chart um, from JP Morgan shows corporate profits uh, by showing S&P 500 earnings per share and S&P 500 profit margins. And this could be kind of a good explanation, Matt, for why stocks are at all-time highs, because S&P 500 companies are looking better than they ever have before. Um, so in terms of earnings per share and profit margins, we're kind of near all-time highs right now. You know, it's funny. Um, I literally remember when um, you picked this research piece out and I was reviewing it. Um, I remember back in the late 2000s, okay? Um, there was an asset management firm called GMO. They're still around. Um, um, it's Grantham's firm. They are a very big value uh, oriented firm. 
and um, they submitted this research that literally was titled, we are at peak profit margins. They're <laughs> never going to go higher, was yeah. the insinuation after that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And for the listeners, if you pull up this chart on our show notes, it goes back to 1999. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to see at that point, they peaked and didn't overcome that level uh, until 2013. Yeah. Right. But what I'm getting at is, I think there's a lot of people right now who are going to try to pull the same thing. We are at peak profit margins, right? And if you see that immediately, what it says to me is you're wrong. Yeah. Because when you say that we can't continue to squeeze out efficiencies with technology, I think it would be very naive to think that. No, I think it is too. And it goes back to our point that you, know, you got to be careful what you hear and take everything with a grain of salt because you're going to have all these people that, you know, go out on major news stations to get notoriety and get their name out there and make these crazy calls where, you know, in, in hindsight, it really hasn't really worked in the past. <laughs> yeah. So I think technologically, I think that you're going to continue. I'm not saying it's going to go straight up. I'm not saying it's going to peak temporarily, but, um, you know, that was a valuable lesson for me. And yeah, it's I, just it's a it's a chart that that tells me that I love know, it. things are good. Right I love now. this chart. I mean, I'm right. glad you brought it up. Yeah. And it kind of shows it in comparison with S&P earnings per share. I like it. Yeah. So, um, no, I think this is a great chart. And it also lets you know that if someone says, Mark, but stocks are trading at a higher valuation, you could point at this chart and say, yeah, they are for a reason. Mm hmm. Right, exactly. It's not not because of a lack of growth that we're seeing right now. Or I mean, a lack of efficiency the... in how the companies run. Right, right. Just based upon the S&P 500 averages. Yeah. All right. Yep. Uh, the second chart, another one from JP Morgan. Um, this one shows the strength of the U.S. consumer and specifically uh, the household debt uh, service ratio. And what this ratio is... Oh, this is going to be a good one, Mark. Yeah. It's the debt payments as a percentage of disposable income. Okay. Um, so when people talk about household debt, they usually just talk about, you know, we're at record highs for people that have debt right now for households and their debt. It kind of seems that that's a, that's a recycled headline. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I would, I would expect that to be the case for most periods of time because over time, people's incomes are going to be rising. So, you know, people are going to be able to the afford debt levels, more the headline debt. debt number is going to be higher than. Right. So I think when you talk about debt, you need to put it into this this service ratio. And again, that's taking the debt payments as a percentage of disposable income. Excellent. Okay. And, and this chart shows that the current reading is as low as it's been since 1980 at about 9.7%. All right. Hold on a second. They've been telling us, Mark, that the consumer is strapped. They mm -hmm. have way too much debt. Yeah. And when you break it down from a headline number, because again, with inflation, you know, $100 today is not going to be worth $100 10 years from now. Right. Right. So you're saying on a kind of balance sheet scenario on average, the U.S. consumer is actually pretty good right now. Yeah, very good. And I think it goes back to, you know, our previous episodes where we've noted that the consumer is out there and spending. But also, if you look at it from this standpoint, you know, we're at, you know, the debt service ratio is the lowest that it's been since 1980. So when did it peak? Uh, it peaked, it looks like by this chart, uh, probably right around 08, um, at 13.2%. 
and now it's down uh, to 9.7% as of the fourth quarter of 2019. That's, um, that's so again, a strong just more, underlying statistic, yeah. especially with two-thirds of our economy driven by the consumer. We have rising wages you and I have talked about. The labor market is tight in general, especially in the lower end of the labor market, which statistically that consumer, he or she spends most of what they make, mm-hmm. right? This is this is definitely something that can play into a theme, an investment theme. Yeah, exactly. And strong consumer means that they can take on more debt and at the same time, coupled with, you know, historically low interest rates, people can afford to do this now. And I think that, you know, it's just a misconception when you talk about just debt in general. Um, you know, there's no real, you know, uh, you gotta be, you gotta, behind you it. You got to have a way to benchmark it. Right. And so you're quantifying it. And I'm glad you brought this is a great yeah. one to bring up. Yep. Excellent work. Um, and then this last one, this was probably my favorite note of the week, Matt. Um, and this is from an article uh, or a blog uh, post titled 20 Rules for Markets and Investing uh, by Charlie uh, Bilello. Char- and Charlie always has good stuff. He does have good stuff. Yeah. Hopefully we can um, maybe reach out to Charlie and see if he'd be interested in coming on to the podcast because I really enjoy, He's enjoy reading stuff. Him, his stuff, uh, both on the markets and the personal finance side of things. So this was uh, posted by him on December 23rd of 2019. Okay. And it was on the compoundadvisors.com uh, website, um, which we will also link to uh, in the show notes. So Charlie makes a lot of good points in this article. So check it out if you have the time. Um, but I just wanted to point out one that stood out to me. And it was number 11 on his list. And this one was saving is more important than investing. No savings equals no investing. He goes on to say that investment returns get all the attention, but for most people, how much they save is much more important. Over 30 years, saving 8% of your income with a 1% rate of return handedly beats an 8% return with a 1% savings rate. And he posts this chart. And it uses, um, you know, the saving amounts uh, in the table that he posts are based on an after-tax median household income um, at this time. And it turns out that this uh, income turned out to be $53,550. So if you spent, or excuse me, if you saved 8% of your income, growing it at 1% per year, after 30 years, you'd have a little more than $149,000 based on the $53,000 income level. Okay. Okay. And if you saved 1% of your income per year and made 8% on that every year, over 30 years, you would only have $60,663. So that's huge. I mean, that's that's more than half um, by just controlling your savings rate. So um, he kind of ends this point by saying this is a good thing for saving more is something you can actually control, whereas earning a higher investment return is not a function of effort. Like it. So, so again, this is something we've talked about before, but this is one lever that people can control is the amount that they're saving. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, this goes back to the point if people are looking for ways to increase their um, financial position in their life, this is an easy lever that anyone can pull. Um, it's just controlling your saving and your spending rate. Focus on things you can control, yeah. right? 
Um, so that's all I had in terms of news and um, tweets for the week, Matt. Do you have anything you want to yeah, discuss I got a, here? I got a couple. I got one from CNBC on January 4th, 2020, 7.22 a.m. It was uh, a tweet from them talking about how um, when market reactions to the previous 20 Middle East crisis events over the past 30 years, how the market's done, okay? And so if you bought one day after the crisis started and sold one month after, on average, the S&P was actually positive 0.9%. That's interesting. And then uh, if you bought one day before the crisis, and sold three months after the S&P on average was up 2.8. Just caught my eye. Just a little tidbit there. Yeah, that's okay. interesting. Yeah. Um, another piece I thought was kind of cool. This was from uh, Pivotal Capital tweet on January 3rd, um, 11.57 a.m. And had to do with kind of headline numbers uh, for um, some of the automakers, what they did in December, Mark. What I found as I digged a little deeper... Um, and I found a CNBC article about total auto sales for December were down approximately 3.2%. And the declines, though, what caught my eye were, were the worst for some of the foreign automakers. I'm going to give you an example. Nissan in December. In the U.S., sales down 29.5%. Honda down 12 I was able to dig up in the article Honda's estimate was a gain of 0.7%, and they came in down 12. Toyota, negative 6.1. The estimate was a gain of 0.8. Fiat Chrysler, down 2.3. You know, so could a combo of the tariffs from the foreign automakers combined with consumers continuing to hold on to their cars longer be a reason for this? Yeah. So um, I looked also at how long an average American today holds on to their cars. And Mark, according to HIS Market Research, they are holding their cars for nearly seven years before buying another. Hmm. So again, we're looking at the consumer data. Data you even pointed out today is telling me the consumer is strong. I just think this is a combination of people are holding onto their cars longer. And I don't think in my opinion, this is indicative of structural weakness of the consumer at this time. Yeah, no, I agree too, because I think there is a lot more you know, this is just a personal opinion, but back in the day, say, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, the upgrades that we saw from cars year to year were a lot greater than they are now, right? It's almost like, like what the stage, what the incremental gains, what the stage of the iPhone is right now, right? Where there were so many large gains and steps in making the technology so much better in the iPhone that now it's just very little things every year because we almost reached a point where, you know, how can we make the iPhone better? I think we're doing the same thing with cars where, you know, car lives are lasting a lot longer now due to technology. So I don't think that it's indicative of, of, of a weak consumer, like you said, mm-hmm. um, but it's interesting to point out, um, you know, because these are, you know, foreign automakers. Yeah, it's just interesting. Yeah. I mean, again, what caught my eye was just the headline numbers, Mark, for some of those versus their estimates in December. That's originally what caught my eye. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll send it back to you, sir. Um, 
So moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, uh, this comes from an article on Morningstar from Christine Benz, and we've talked about some of her material before. She writes um, for Morningstar and some really good articles on, on personal finance, and this was on December 23rd of 2019, and the title of this is How Do Your Financial Priorities Stack Up With Our Pyramid? So I kind of like this idea of the financial priorities pyramid, um, kind of like a food pyramid, where the most uh, important priorities are at the base of the pyramid and the least important are at the top. Okay. So I think this is a simple and easy way for someone to look at their financial priorities to see if they have them in order. And again, we'll link to this article in the show notes, and I really encourage everyone to, to go and read this article on your own and kind of see if your financial priorities uh, pyramid looks similar. And if not, this might be a good time to make a change and make it a priority. For 2020. Uh, with, yeah, with the start of the new year. Love it, Mark. Um, so digging into uh, the article, at the base of the pyramid, um, Christine has setting and prioritizing your financial goals. Okay. Um, so Christine says, rather than operating with the amorphous goal of wealth accumulation, take a step back and articulate the specifics of what you're trying to achieve, when you'll need the money, and how much. Paying the full freight for college for each of your kids, retirement while you're still young enough to enjoy it, a move to a bigger house within the next five years. By quantifying each of your financial goals, you may see that it's not going to be possible to achieve them all, but it's better to know that early on so you can prioritize. So I think this is true for most people, Matt, that you know they don't have an end goal in mind and they just have the general goal of wealth accumulation. Sure. Um, and when you don't have a plan, like we talked about before, it makes it that much more difficult later in life to make these decisions ad hoc. Um, so I agree that the first step is kind of developing goals or a plan before anything else. Do you agree with that? I do, sir. Okay. Um, so the next part is how much you save. And this goes back to the point made by Charlie earlier um, during this podcast um, that managing your saving and spending rate is one of those levers that investors you, you know, have the most uh, power to pull. So Christine says that budgeting is boring, which is why it's easy to give short shrift to it in favor of sexier pursuits such as trading stocks. And that's true because we see people talk about that a lot, right? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's much more fun to talk about what the hot stock is than, you know, your budgeting or how much your savings rate is right now, right? Yeah, that, that, that's not sexy. That's no, not fun. No one wants to talk about that. But even if you select the very best investments, you'll be hard pressed to make up for a shortfall if you haven't saved enough. That's why setting your saving and spending rate has a far more importance in the pyramid than does investment selection. As a result of technological advances and new electronic budgeting tools, there have never been more ways to monitor and manage your spending. So I agree with Christine here, Matt. It's really there really isn't an excuse anymore for not managing your budget or this part of your finances because there are so many tools out there that can help you do it very easily. Yeah, I mean, 
Um, there's so many uh, sites out there where you can link your accounts. It can track your spending. You can do it manually. Heck, get an Excel spreadsheet. I still right. do it old school. Yeah, I do too. I do too. But you there's, know? you know, the Apple card tracks everything there's for you so now. And there's mint.com and um, Portfolio Capital, I think, is another one. Mint there's so is a popular many, one. Yeah, there's so many different options for yeah. people. Um, and again, going back to, to Charlie's blog uh, post, that you know, saving more and earning less is better than saving less and earning more. Um, you know, we we prove that mathematically, and you know, this is something that I think um, a lot of people don't pay attention to. But this is a part of of the plan before this, right? Is yep. um, you know, what are your goals, and then how are you going to get there? And the how are you going to get there part is managing your your savings rate and your spending rate. I yeah, because that's the major level lever as you. Um, the saver, um, that's the major lever that you can pull. I have control over. Have control over, yeah. Um, so the next uh, band in this pyramid is choosing your asset allocation. Um, so quoting directly from the article, a portfolio that consists entirely of cash and short-term bonds will exhibit very flu- few fluctuations, which can provide peace of mind and may be appropriate for very short-term goals. Over time, however, it will get eaten alive by a portfolio that includes a stock component. And I know that you agree with this, and we've talked about this before, Matt, but I just wanted to quote something that you mentioned in our newsletter that we just sent out to um, our clients. So, Please do. Um, people who are listening that get our newsletter every month, you'll see this, but I thought that this was, that this was really well said. At Jessup Wealth Management, we take each day, month, and year as it comes, rather than trying to predict the unpredictable. Behind the scenes, we continuously update our investing blueprint and then apply that proactively to portfolios that we manage. We have learned that the markets can be fickle, but ultimately they are a wealth-generating engine, and that is hard to beat so long as you can remain calm, disciplined, and diversified. I love it. So again, you know, we've talked so much about, you know, people being too conservative with their investments and how that does a disservice to them actually over the long run. Um, so I, I think that, you know, this point made by Christine just kind of backs up what we've said to people, um, that they don't think we're crazy and we're the only people saying this, but, um, but you know, if you don't take enough risk, you're not going to get enough return. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to sit in, if you're going to keep that emergency fund that has a perpetual, you know, time horizon of six months, you know, that emergency fund could sit in cash for a decade and not even keep up with inflation. Yeah, exactly. And then you lose your purchasing power. And when that happens, you know, you're kind of backed into a corner. Absolutely. Um, so you agree with that one? I do, sir. Okay. Um, the next band is managing your own behavior. And this gets into the emotions. Um, again, that we just, I like, I like reading these articles so people don't think we're coming up with this out of thin air, that we're not the only ones that think of this stuff. I love so, it, Mark. This is a good article. Uh, it's, it's good to read this stuff. Um, so managing your own behavior, even if you've gone to the trouble of creating a well-allocated portfolio, none of it is going to matter if you freak out and retreat to cash in times of turmoil. Many financial advisors say one of their most important contributions to their clients' financial well-being is to help them manage their emotions and stick with their plans through good and bad environments. So we preach this all of the time on here. So 
I won't go into much more about that, but again, the emotional side of things, keeping your emotions in checked, and you have to detach your emotions for what's going on in the world at any given point in time. Yeah, again, you know, when you and I are making investment decisions behind the scenes, you know, for our clients' money and our own money, you know, we are looking past the noise of what's going to happen this week or this month, right? So we have a longer term time horizon when we're making those decisions. And we have to remain very disciplined um, in keeping those emotions in check. And we understand it's that much harder for the end investor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next band is managing for tax efficiency. So for most people, I think, Matt, this means taking advantage of your workplace 401k, contributing to an IRA or a Roth IRA to kind of spread out your tax liability in retirement. So um, again, just how you have to diversify your investments, you want to diversify your tax liability so that in retirement, you have these different buckets uh, that you can choose from to help minimize that tax liability uh, in retirement. And I think a part of this too is saving into an after-tax account, right? Because when you're saving to, to these retirement accounts, you're going to get penalized if you take money out if you're under 59 and a half. Yep. Okay, so you want to have, um, you know, money that's working for you, but at the same time, that's accessible to you as well. I mean, in, in a perfect world, um, as a money manager and as a as an advisor to these clients, I want them to have three buckets of money. I want them to have the after tax bucket. I want them to have the pre tax deferred traditional bucket. And I want them to have the post tax deferred, i.e. Roth bucket. Mm -hmm. If they could have those three different buckets and they're going to have the ability then in retirement, Mark, to better control what their tax bill is going to be. Right, exactly. Yep. And at the top is making investment selections. And I know that we'll have a little conversation about this. I'm uh, roaring, ready to go. Matt, but um, Christine says, its placement here shouldn't indicate that picking securities is not important. Rather, investment selection appears at the top because it needs to be informed by the factors beneath it in the pyramid. Now, I agree with that, um, that statement that, you know, you need to have everything prioritized, especially a plan in place, um, you know, before you, you talk about selecting individual securities. But I know that you have some comments on this, maybe flip-flopping a couple of these uh, pyramid blocks, so to speak. Yeah. So for me, Mark, I would flip-flop the top two, okay? okay. Which is I, managing tax efficiency and making investment selections. I would. So I would put tax efficiency at the top. Um, in, in my personal opinion, I think people make way too many decisions based upon the tax consequences when at the end of the day, the potential actual market losses in that security could dwarf what the tax liability would have been if they would have sold and moved on into a better investment. And so, you know, unfortunately, those decisions don't look good until hindsight comes into place. Right. Right. But I think that uh, the first thing that comes into play for me is, you know, never letting, say, one holding in your liquid net worth at a minimum get above 20%. Yeah. Right. So there's certain things that come into place for me that forces me to want to switch and make the security selection a more important thing than the tax side. Because I think that at a certain point, the tax liability is dwarfed by what you could potentially lose by holding on to it because I can't sell because of taxes. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, and that's a pretty easy calculation to make for, for most people. Um, you know, you, 
you make the computation of, hey, you know, what am I going to pay in taxes if I sell it at this price? Or, you know, what's the opportunity cost that, you know, you move, you sell it, move it into another investment that, that does better or doubles or triples over time. And then the tax liability doesn't really matter. Yeah. I think the toughest thing for a lot of investors is, you know, no one likes paying taxes. No. Right. But if you're paying taxes on investment gains, what does it mean? You made money. You made, you made money, right? Exactly. Right? Yeah. So you know, at a certain point, um, as much yeah. as we don't like it, but you're going to have to pay the piper at, at one point or another, right? Bingo. Yeah. So that's why, in my personal opinion, I would feel more comfortable swapping those two. Yeah, on, I on see. The pyramid yeah, scheme. I see. I see both sides and, of it. And, and I, again, part of that comes just from my personal background of, you know, I prefer to pick individual investments than owning just the averages, personal opinion. And so that also plays into my decision making on that. Yeah. And I think for the majority of the population too, um, the tax consequences aren't as great as say, um, someone who has a net worth of 10 million or $15 million. I would agree. Um, so I think with the treatment of long-term capital gains, dividends, et cetera. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, that, that plays into it as well. Um, it's kind of different for, for everybody. Love it. Um, okay. Well, we don't have any questions, uh, for, uh, this week. So before we wrap up, Matt, is there anything else you want to point out? Nope. We're going to be kicking off earnings season next week. You're going to see a lot of the banks report mark, uh, middle end of next week. So just want to let everyone know that we're going to be watching that closely. Uh, we'll probably bring it up again next week, but it'll be too early to talk about, you know, the health of, of Q4 earnings, but mm -hmm. that's on, that's definitely on the horizon, and the next Fed meeting is at the very end of January, um, and we don't expect much uh, policy change at that point, but just throwing out a couple of things that you and I are keeping an eye on. Yeah, yeah. Well, with that being said, thank you, everyone, for listening to the 28th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We uh, uh, appreciate everyone that listens every week and um, hope that we can continue to deliver great content in 2020. Share it with your friends, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. 
Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.